we invite you to this coming week's message of Good Theology, a podcast ministry of the Good Theology Project, a mission of ministry to seek, sow, and spread God's kingdom of love here on earth. We cannot wait for someone else to do later what God has already called us to do here and now. To learn more about the Good Theology Project, visit us online at goodtheology.life. Happy fourth Sunday after Epiphany, my Good Theology family. Grace and peace to you. This week, uh, before we get to the message, we actually have two questions that were sent in from our listeners. Um, If you want to skip ahead uh, just to the message, the time index is in this week's description. Okay, so the first question was regarding last week's message. Our listener wrote us and said, Last week, you gave an example of God changing his mind a really, really long time ago, but are there any other situations that are more recent where he changed his mind? Listener, uh, to our listener, thank you for the question. We're glad to keep the dialogue going. Um, So in regard to the question, I do want to clarify that, that last week I didn't say that God changes his mind. I said that God makes course corrections, that God does things that appear to us like he's changing his mind. Um, but that are God making adjustments along the way, right? And I actually think that the most, maybe not obvious, but the most continual and ongoing and frequent example of that would actually be when we partake in like the Eucharist, communion, baptism. We're believing that God is doing something, right? That God is changing something in us that there is something happening that isn't necessarily part of the script that God is participating in right because we say that we believe that baptism and that the Eucharist is God doing something miraculous and so an example of of God not keeping to the script would be in all of those moments where we where we see that example happening, um, if that m- makes any sense. Um, if you're looking for something where, because I think the premise to your question also has the premise of asking, where do we know God is going to do something and God doesn't do what we think God will do? And that's on a per- case-by-case basis of your relationship with God and God speaking to you we don't have that sort of recorded down the way that we have the prophets recording their, like God's prophetic voice through them. Um, And so it's harder to pinpoint those larger swath moments where it's like, we know God said God would do X in the here and now, because you're you're asking a contemporary question, right? Like in the here and now, we don't have any contemporary prophets as recorded in scripture, right? Like that we might, but we don't have it as scripture. Um, And so to see God changing God's mind, I, I mean, that's, that's a loaded way to say that. I would say that to, to see God doing course corrections is instead, if you want modern context, to look at those modern examples of where God is doing miracle, where miracle doesn't happen on its own. Um, and so like the Eucharist, the uh, forgiveness of sins, the the baptisms, the all the ways in which we have visible signs of knowing that God is doing something is just one way that we can say, hey, that 
wouldn't happen normally, but because of God, that's happening differently, right? If you're looking for something that isn't predictive, and I use that word sparing like very carefully because one might argue that the sacraments are quasi-predictive because we're saying that they're going to happen so we rely on god making them happen kind of thing um if you're thinking about something that is that is non-predictive non-assured in terms of what then that i would say is a really um that's a point of discernment between you and your prayer life with god right asking god where did you say that something would happen where did i think something was happening where would it go differently um and so i don't mean to sort of push it back on you listener but i also do mean to push it back on you to say pose that question to god have that question held in your mind space in prayer um, and help god walk you through that anyway so i thank you for your question um we're glad to keep the dialogue going so please you know email us um if, I hope it helped. If, if it doesn't, please email us. Okay, so our second uh, question we got this week was, who decided God was a he? Wow. Okay, so not a small question. Um, deciding God is a he is a super loaded statement. I think we can, I think we have to acknowledge that that there is a, an assumption in the premise of your question that someone decided God was a he. And the reason I say that, that, that that's a premise we want to be aware of is because we only know for a fact that Jesus was a he, right? That's the only thing that's actually permanent. And then the other, well, no, so there are two permanents. The second permanent is that we know that Jesus calls out Abba Father and talks about the Father in the Gospel. So we know that Jesus was a man, that the incarnate Jesus was a man, and we know that that incarnate Jesus in that time space was calling out Abba Father, right? The And, and we wrestle ongoing, like theologians wrestle with in regards to God the Father being gendered or not. Was that gender because God is actually male or masculine? Or is it because in that context, Father and Lord and King was the dominant supreme? So to say anything other than that would be to relinquish supremacy in some kind of way, to to acknowledge that there was something potentially more in authority right and so i mean it also gives space to personality right like we know that the mother of god is mary and so the father of god and what does that mean in terms of the role of fatherhood for jesus and for god's role in our lives right so i think that those are important to hold in tension because it gives us space, right? It gives us space to enjoy the masculine language that's there, right? Because when we say our Father who art in heaven, we don't say it because, we don't say it, I don't believe it's meant to be as a reinforcement of gender so much as Jesus said, pray our Father in heaven, because he's saying, just like he is my Father, he is your Father. We are claiming 
we are claiming siblinghood, we are claiming descendancy, we are claiming image of God. Like by saying our Father who art in heaven, we're claiming God as our own parent, right? And so holding that intention, you know, there's also a huge history of people referring to the Holy Spirit with more feminine characteristics and, and intonations and understanding. And like, there's a huge personality around the mother of God, the Virgin Mary, and and the power and um, holy wisdom and Sophia, right? And that's that that femininity. And so the play of gender and gender queerness, for lack of a better term, um, has to really be held in tension. I don't think we can, I think that it would be unfair to say that God is a he just because there are aspects that we shouldn't lose, right? I'm not going to advocate that we get rid of saying Father in heaven, right? Because Jesus said Father in heaven. And so to a certain extent, I want to be able to say the same thing that Jesus said, right? I want to claim that that relationship that I have with Jesus in that same way. Um, or not in that same way, but in that way of using that same language. To the more tacit understanding of the perpetuation of gender in divinity, um, that is a much larger conversation around organized religion in general and society and culture and how um, masculinity is used. And and I and I want to name that because I don't want us to rob God of some really amazing things just because men have co-opted God in really strong ways. Um, that is, I'm, I'm going to pause it in that space so that, you know, one of our listeners, you or any other of our listeners can sort of email back and we can start the dialogue continuation. Um, but I do want to guess get us into the message. And I hope um, that was just a, a, a drop in the bucket of the conversations to come. And I'm really glad for these. Uh, you know, as always, if people have questions regarding theology or our previous messages, please email us at goodtheology at icloud.com and we'll try to answer them on the next episode. Um, that's goodtheology at icloud.com. Um, okay, so, but before we get into the word and into our message today, let's do what we always do and center ourselves and our intentions. Almighty and everlasting God, our ears to hear you, our eyes to see you, our behavior to share you. Glory be to you, God, source of all being, incarnate word, and Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Okay, so today our reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, and we're reading them from the uh, Common English Bible's translation. Now, concerning meat that has been sacrificed to a false god, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes people arrogant, but love builds people up. If anyone thinks they know something, they don't yet know as much as they should know. But if someone loves God, then they are known by God. So concerning the actual food involved in these sacrifices to false gods, we know that a false god isn't anything in this world, and that there is no god except for the one god. Granted, there are so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. However, for us believers, there is one God, the Father. All things come from him, and we belong to him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ, all things through him, and we live through him. 
But not everyone knows this. Some are eating this food as though it really is food sacrificed to a real idol, because they were used to idol worship until now. Their conscience is weak because it has been damaged. Food won't bring us close to God. We're not missing out if we don't eat, and we don't have any advantage if we do eat. But watch out, or else this freedom of yours might be a problem for those who are weak. Suppose someone sees you, the person who has knowledge, eating in an idol's temple. Won't the person with a weak conscience be encouraged to eat the meat sacrificed to false gods? The weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. You sin against Christ if you sin against your brothers and sisters and hurt their weak consciences this way. This is why, if food causes the downfall of my brother or sister, I won't eat meat ever again, or else I may cause my brother or sister to fall. The word of God for the people of God. Okay, so I'm going to say something that has the potential to make our listeners, you, very upset. So one, please hear me out. Um, And two, that's also kind of my job, right? God's mission of love is to redeem his creation, to transform this world. So even if I have to say something that's going to make you feel uncomfortable, my hope is that even in some small way, it furthers that transformation. But, But if all I do is merely piss you off, so much that it provokes you to delve deep into scripture and then deeper into transforming this world for love, because you just want to prove me wrong, whatever I'd say, like the... I'll be satisfied. Argument and different opinions, they're not just good, they're necessary for the development of any mind in any culture. But, okay, so what I wanted to talk about today, what might upset you is, and I'm just going to come out and say it, I'm going to claim it, and we'll get through this together, I'm glad that we aren't allowed to gather in churches in person. There, I said it. So even as a priest, even as a firm believer in the sacraments, in communion, in confession, in the importance of worshiping together, in all the ways that people need each other. And not only am I glad that churches haven't been able to worship inside the churches, I actually hope that we don't get to for at least a while longer. And for those communities who've met anyway, who haven't stopped worshiping together, and I don't mean like one or two people or you know five people or whatever doing digital worship i mean when the whole church is like just still gathering i feel bad for them and not from a health perspective not from a wellness or covid reason but but actually all of because what i believe first corinthians is saying and provoking us to today now now don't misunderstand me i'm not glad for covid I'm not glad for sickness. I'm not glad for any of the economic and emotional hardships that have come because of this, right? But, but our text today has made me wonder. It has made me seriously curious about if, if we as the church, the body of Christ, the people of Jesus' teachings, are actually being church out there in the world. Or if we're only being church in here, inside those walls. And if, just like if, our forced exile outside of these church buildings, maybe it's given us this opportunity where we've been getting really slack and lazy about, and this is our chance to test ourselves and really double down. The are we being church out there, outside those walls? 
Now, okay, so I don't mean are we doing good works. I don't mean are we missioning. I've seen some amazing continuation of the church's ministries. Various churches are doing amazing stuff in COVID times, right? In ministries of food, of finance, of shelter, of care. What, what I mean is that what I want to have you pray deep and hard and long after my message is over is that are we being church and how can we be church outside of the church walls just as much, if not more so, than the church that we are when we are inside the walls? Okay, so let me take a step back. When I was a kid, Sometimes I would get home from school before my parents, right? And there was that very rare moment that I would forget my house key, right? And I'd be locked out of the house, just waiting for my parents to, like, come home. Now, this was before kids had cell phones. And so uh, sometimes I could use a neighbor's phone or I could hang out with a friend. Um, but there were those really difficult days when I might be waiting for hours before my parents could get home. And they didn't even know I was locked out of the house, Um and to clarify, this is before there were kids were given cell phones, not before there were cell phones ever. I feel like I feel like I need to clarify that. But anyway, so so I just had to pass the time, right? Not knowing when they might arrive to let me in. Does that kind of sound familiar though? Not the cell phone part, but the being the lock the, the being locked out part, right? Because I'll tell you, those first minutes away, those first minutes that I couldn't get in the house, they sucked. It was all this waiting and hoping, and it was draining, right? I just wanted to get back into the house so I could start my afternoon, so I could watch TV, do my homework, have a snack, and do all the things that I did on a school day. But because I was locked out, I couldn't. But after that initial period of discomfort, after I resigned myself to accepting that I'd have to figure out a way to pass the time or I might just like die of boredom, I had to get creative. For me, if I didn't figure out a creative solution, I'd end up suffering, building up resentment and anger that my like parents didn't psychically know that I was like that, that I was locked out um, and that I didn't or that like we didn't have a site to site transporter or I didn't have my own personal TARDIS, you know, like or just be mad at myself that I didn't have stupid, that I mean that I didn't have my keys and that I was stupid, right? Like all of these different things, right? Um, and I hope you appreciated the Star Trek and uh, Doctor Who references in there. But, but then it would happen, right? Then I would sort of accept my reality. I would decide to commit to having a different experience. And not lose all those things that I knew I needed. Those things that were still part of what were important in that day, right? I needed entertainment. I needed to do my homework. And I needed food. Uh, well, okay, so TBH, I didn't, I was like kind of a fat kid and I didn't actually like need, need food. Um, I'd eaten lunch and I could wait for dinner. So like, that's, <laughs> but the other parts, the, the homework, like, and the entertainment were very necessary, right? Sure, I didn't have a dining room table to do work at, but I did have my backpack. I did have, like, the text. I did have a number two pencil. Sure, the ground wasn't as smooth as, like, a, a dining room table, but I used a book and, and, and made do. And for entertainment, I let my imagination take over, and I played outside. Sure, I probably looked a little crazy or kooky to anyone who passed by, but, I, I mean, I didn't care. I was having fun. 
for all the disconnectedness and separation that this past year has brought us, not being able to physically gather in church, being locked out of the house without the keys, not knowing when we'll be let back inside again, has produced a test for all of us that, that I want to name and describe. And to be honest, actually, I'm not the one who describes it. St. Paul is in 1 Corinthians. Now, I know his letter may not seem like he's talking to our circumstance, but actually, I think he's describing it perfectly. In his letter to the Christians in Corinth, he is talking about authenticity, about making some critical theological clarifications, and about model behavior, about teaching and passing along knowledge that's true, as opposed to falsehoods and hypocrisy. He's holding up for us these two great questions of what truly matters and what are you teaching others? So the circumstance Paul was talking about specifically was that there were some Christians in Corinth that were getting their meats from places that had blessed the foods in the name of false gods, idols that those butchers or merchants worshipped, but not in the name of Jesus or the Trinity or it wasn't blessed with Christian blessing, right? So there was this infighting about whether or not people should be should completely abstain from eating the meat, uh, like the prophet Daniel did in the Hebrew Bible, or if it was okay to eat the meat. And and Paul's answer to them, his advice was twofold. He said, "Here, look, if they bless the food in the name of some pagan idol that we know isn't real or the true God, then honestly, like no harm, no foul, because like nothing is gonna happen." And. I mean, in a similar kind of, to to put it in a contemporary note, let's be honest here, unless you're a Christian, you don't believe that the bread and the wine on our Sunday Eucharist services are transformed into anything. And actually, even some Christians don't even believe that anything happens to the bread and wine during communion. I mean, we know otherwise, but to those non-Christians, it's just bread and wine. So, like, Paul saying that, like, look, if there are people who can only afford the meat that has been blessed in the name of an idol, if that's the only way that they can eat or they'll starve, don't chastise them for surviving, right? Like, he's—I only bring up that circumstance now as just what we know to be true versus what others know to be true. I mean, Paul is being very clear that if someone is being given meat and they can't afford it, for example, you don't swat it out of their hand, especially when you know nothing is happening, right? Now, don't confuse what I'm saying, right? Paul isn't giving anyone free reign to do anything just because you feel you need to, right? Like starving and other things are not are not the same. And he even does say, right, to abstain from meat if the situation warrants it because of that second thing, right? Because he's saying we know, he's saying that we know that the meat isn't being changed or blessed because we know those idols aren't real. So don't beat each up, don't beat each other up. But that other thing, that second thing that he's saying is that what we model for others, particularly others who don't know the things the way that we do, means that we're teaching them things that could be misleading, right? So to like go back to that communion example, that this modern communion example, if we're in church and someone got up during communion, went up and received the host and drank the wine, but they were an atheist and they believe that nothing is happening, 
for the rest of us, we're watching that person. We might believe that they are a Christian or that, and we might believe that they really are taking, I mean, we do believe that they are taking in the body and blood of Christ, right? What we do in front of other people matters. And yes, what's on the inside counts, but what we show other people also counts. When Boss Baby and Timmy um, save their parents from Super Colossus Baby, who'd like all grown up, right? Like there's this moment where their parents overhear Boss Baby talk and they're like, who's that? And Timmy is like, oh, it's me. And he does, right? Because like there's this moment where it's not about being true or false, but it's about perception being really pivotal and understanding perception, understanding the reality of perception. Now, I really like Boss Baby for a lot of reasons, one of which being that I love Alec Baldwin's corporate humor and like the bit about memos. And I'm like, ha, scriptures are the memos for the Jesus movement. Um, but in, in the instance, I think about how perception is important, not hypocrisy, not being inauthentic and lying, but that some people don't get the same meanings, right? Because like boss, like that we have to be aware of what other people's exist, like experience, just as much as being aware of ourselves. And Paul is being pretty clear here um, that teaching, that the education of one person to the others, is a fundamental part of spiritual formation. Um, so like. We have to be very careful in this difficult time, right? We're locked out of the house without keys. We don't know when we're going to get back in. But it means we have two options. We can stare at the church doors until we can get back in, and we can fight and scream until we're let back in. Or we we can remember just how visible we are to the outside world. Inside the church walls, You know, we're always pleasant and kind. We worship and we remember the message. And it's not an act. We're not pretending. We're around other people that remind us to act that way, inside a place that reminds us to be that way, constantly encouraged to live into that way. Right? The reinforcement is all-encompassing. And everyone is in the know. Or at least they're familiar And even with visitors and non-Christians at at a good church, they're usually given context and good hospitality. But outside these church walls, who are you? How do you act? What are you doing that displays yourself as a Christian? Not just in your icons like jewelry and t-shirts, but in your behavior. I'm glad for this forced exile we live in because it asks the toughest of tough questions. Are we being Christian out there the way that we are inside the church? And the truth is, even when we get back into the church walls, when we're let back in, we're still like we're still not in heaven yet. We still haven't reached God's heavenly kingdom. We still have a world to transform down here. I I want to close with this thought. Whenever we forget our keys or phone or wallet somewhere and we have to go claim them, we know it's ours, right? But when we get there, don't we still have to describe it or show some ID or do something that lets the other person know that we are who we say we are? 
Not because it makes us any less ours. The wallet is still ours. The phone is still ours. But because it it helps to prove our authenticity to them so that they can trust us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Good Theology. To learn more, please find us online at goodtheology.life.